Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville. I am your host, Stan McCune, realtor here in Greenville, South Carolina. And just a reminder, as always, you can always reach me with my contact information. That will be in the show notes. Has my email, has my direct phone number if you need me for any reason. And please, if you like this show, please subscribe, rate it, review it. If you're getting on a plane or whatever, download it. Make sure that you have access to this podcast and that you're telling other people about it by just giving me a 10-second review or a quick little rating. Those things are great, and, uh, and I really appreciate those of you that have done it. I'm really excited about today's topic. We're going to be talking about something that comes up a lot, and honestly, I'm going to be recommending to a lot of my clients in the future that are kind of new to this market or just don't have a lot of experience with buying and selling homes in the upstate of South Carolina that they listen to this podcast. So if you're one of those, if you're someone that I've said to listen to this, please do. Please hear it out to the very end. I'll try to make it interesting. But this is one of my most important podcasts, I believe, because it's dealing with an issue that comes up a lot with both buyers and sellers. And the issue is that in South Carolina, generally, but Specifically in Greenville, we have a very unique way that we go about the inspection period and and how we handle seller paid repairs, and it is uh, an an issue that you know we really want to see improved, and a lot of us realtors want to see improvement, but there's a lot that don't. To be completely honest, uh, there's a lot of politics involved in this, but we're just going to talk about what is the situation my understanding of how this all works, and I have to hedge this with, I can't interpret the contract um, as a realtor. Unfortunately, the way real estate law is, only a lawyer can truly interpret and truly make uh, law-related decisions based on, and, and, and can truly make interpretations and judges ultimately make final law decisions based on contract language. But I can give you some uh, on the boots on the ground type of real estate interpretations that we as realtors frequently make, and that the the South Carolina uh, Realtor Association has also made for us and has told us, as far as guidelines go, how to interpret it. All right. So here's a little bit of background in the situation. There is uh, a contract, it's called Form 310, that is the uh, kind of the official South Carolina Realtor Association contract. This is a contract that's produced by the association, and it's used very widely across our state. Now, some parts of South Carolina, it's not as common to use this. In the state of South Carolina, you have to have a written contract for real estate, but it can be in any form. You can take a, a contract on the back of a napkin, write out the terms, and there you go. If everyone signs it, that is a real estate contract, as long as it has everything clearly stated in it. Um, as realtors, we use standard forms, and this is one of the standard forms that are used in our state. Now, my office, uh, which at the time of recording this, the C. Dan Joyner Realtors, which were a part of the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Group, a few years ago, we produced our own contract that improved on the South Carolina contract, specifically as it related to the inspection procedure. Um, well, guess what? 
because it was produced by my office, even though there was no branding from my office on it, even though there was there was nothing that would directly tie it back to our office. It was called the Simplified Contract. It's still out there, and it's a major improvement from Form 310. Um, offices in our local area that were insecure about the fact that that uh, that they didn't produce their own contract, that it was my office that did it, uh, they started not allowing that to be used. Now, they're not allowed to not allow certain contracts to be used. So, uh, they skirted it uh, in other ways. I'm not going to get into the weeds and all of that, but basically they've said without saying that they will not accept uh, offers on any contracts that aren't Form 310. So Form 310, which is the official South Carolina Realtor Association form, is more or less the standard form in the Greenville market as a, as a result of this. And Pretty much, it's the only form that I use. Now, if I if I'm representing a seller and a form comes in and an offer comes in on another form, of course, it's my obligation as a realtor to present all offers to my sellers. Um, but this is the form that is almost always used. Now, in the past, until this form was rewritten the past year, it had for the inspection period what we call the repair procedure. And then what would happen is, because the repair procedure is kind of limiting, and it's not really ideal for an investor client, they had an additional addendum that you could add to it that kind of bypassed the repair procedure, and that was called a due diligence addendum. And then they had another addendum that you could add that was that had a clause to it that you could check off that was called an as-is uh, addendum. It was what we colloquially called it. Technically, it wasn't an as-is addendum, but it, it had a checkbox that basically made it an as-is addendum. South Carolina, uh, this past year, this past calendar year, did away with all of that, and they changed Section 8 of the contract to have three things. Repair procedure, due diligence, and as-is. So there are three different checkboxes in consecutive order and we have to check one of them as a realtor for each of these contracts. Now, the contract specifies if you don't check one of them, what happens? And it's really bad if you don't. If you don't check one of them, it defaults to being an as-is transaction. So we'll start with that. An as-is transaction means just what it is, that you are buying the property as-is. Now, it gives you the right to inspect it, but those inspections are meaningless because you still have to buy the property as is. And if you decide that you don't want the property and you are moving forward with it as is, you either didn't check any of those boxes or you checked off the as is box, you are obligated to forfeit your earnest money to back out of that contract. And so as is, really the only reason why you would check that box is, or that you would would make an offer as a buyer to buy a property as is, would be A, if your realtor didn't know what he or she was doing and forgot to check off any boxes uh, in that section, and so it defaults to as is, which is which is not good. Um, or B, if you're if you're buying a property that you really uh, really only if it's going to be cash for one thing, because uh, a lender can require certain repairs to be done. So really, it needs to be a cash purchase, and it, it needs to be a property, honestly, that 
you are so bullish about and there's probably multiple offers on it and to make your offer as sweet as possible, you're saying, you know what? I'm willing to forfeit my earnest money if I find anything wrong with this. I'm not gonna back out without forfeiting my earnest money. Um, and so that is the way the as-is section works. Now, that does not negate that there can be other contingencies in the contract. So maybe you do have financing combined with your as-is purchase. Um, if I'm representing a seller, I would be concerned about that. Um, but let's say that you do have that and the appraisal comes back low. You have an appraisal contingency in there. Well, you could back out on the basis of the low appraisal. Um, you can even combine, this is where it gets kind of weird. Let's say that you saw the property and you walk through the property with your contractor and the contractor says, everything looks good, but I want someone to look in the crawl space that's, that's a licensed you know, CL100 pest inspector to look down there and make sure there's not major termite damage, you could actually include the CL100 contingency, which gives you the ability to check for wood-destroying organisms in the crawl space. That would include mold, that includes termites, um, powder posts, beetles, or whatever those things are called. I'm, I'm obviously no expert in all of that, but there are several wood-destroying organisms. You can actually include that contingency even on an as-is contract, is the way I understand that South Carolina uh, has has structured this contract form. So that could be a, a small little tool in your toolbox if you have a situation where you're buying an investment property, the inside looks good and you just wanna look in the crawl space. You wanna make your offer as sweet as possible, so you just make it as is and then just add that contingency for the, for the CL100 just to make sure that there aren't major active uh, wood destroying organisms down there. The next one is the due diligence period. By the way, if if you if you check all the boxes, there's a there's a little part of this that states if all the boxes are checked, then only the top one that you checked was applied. So the order that this actually goes on the form is repair procedure, then due diligence, then as is. So if you check as is and also check the due diligence uh box, it will default to due diligence. It will not be a true as-is purchase because the way the contract is written uh, and the way the language is, the top one applies regardless of how many boxes are checked. If you check all of them, then repair procedure will apply, which we'll get to last. So that's a little nuance of this form. They figured that some realtors wouldn't know what they were doing and would either not check any of them or would check all of them. And so they included some language in there to, to make that very clear to everyone. Now the due diligence part of this contract, this is what a lot of people think that when they buy a house is really happening, but it's not, not in our area. Due diligence is basically used in our area for investment types of properties, properties where you need to check more than just the major items, properties where maybe you need to um, have a structural engineer look at something or where you need to look at lease agreements or, or uh, check out an easement or you know do some additional research beyond just checking the major systems in the house. You're going to look at all of those things and then you're going to make a determination if you want to move forward under the, the current 
terms of the contract or if you want to try to renegotiate or just back out altogether. Um, this is a, a pretty small percentage of contracts that are under the due diligence uh, uh, arrangement because it gives so much power back to the buyer. The buyer can basically terminate the contract and get their earnest money back for any reason, any reason imaginable. They are allowed to do that during the time specified. Um, and, and they can, as part of their due diligence, decide to go ahead and request for some repairs to be done, or they can, as part of it, request for the, for the price to be reduced. So this is why a lot of investors will uh, will use this option, and, and this is a, a commonly used option on the contract for properties that need a lot of work and, and possibly a lot of inspections will be involved. The thing to understand about the due diligence uh, procedure here, what, what we'll call it, um, is that a, a lot of sellers are not interested in this. If their home isn't a home that does need a lot of work, if it's just a normal person selling their house and you know just moving into another house and their house doesn't need a lot of work, if they're looking at two contracts and one of them uh, gives the buyer the right to back out for any reason and the other one doesn't and all else are equal, guess what? They're going to accept the one that uh, doesn't give the, the the buyer so much power, so much liberty to back out. So you have to be careful. You know, a lot of buyers are like, well, let's just do the thing that gives me the most liberty to back out. I'm sorry, but in this competitive market, you're going to have a lot of contracts turned down uh, with that due diligence addendum. In fact, I just had a client recently that put in a full price cash offer on a home and one of the reasons why it was turned down was because they had a due diligence period and a competing offer was willing to just go the route of being as is. And so that's something that you really, uh, you really need to keep in mind when, uh, when considering which option to move forward with. Another consideration with the due diligence period is you have to get all the negotiating done with the seller before the due diligence period ends. Because if it ends and all your negotiating has already been, com has, has, is, is still being worked on, let me say it that way. If your due diligence period ends, there, it's not the kind of thing where it's like, okay, you have until this date and then you submit your, your resolution. I want the seller to do this or I want the seller to come down this amount of, t uh, um, amount of money. And then the seller has this many days to respond, and then the buyer has this many days to respond. No, no, no. The due diligence period doesn't work that way. It just is a single period, and after that period is over, okay, here is what the contract language says. It says, should buyer fail to obtain a new slash amended contract with the seller or buyer fail to timely slash properly due diligence terminate this contract during the due diligence period, then the buyer agrees to buy and the seller agrees to sell the property as is. So once that due diligence period is over, anything that hasn't been changed in writing, then that deal goes to as is. It is now an as is purchase beyond anything that has already been agreed with in writing. So you have to keep that in mind. Another thing to keep in mind, let's say that you as the buyer want to go the due diligence route, 
you want to have that freedom to be able to back out for any reason, but you know that the seller isn't going to be happy with that. Or maybe you're a seller and you get an offer with a due diligence period built into it and you're concerned about giving the buyer that much liberty. There is another uh, fee that can be added that is separate from the earnest money deposit and, and is called a due diligence termination fee. And so a buyer that includes a due diligence termination fee, what they're saying is, if they agree to terminate the contract, if they determine that they don't want to buy this property at during their due diligence period or after their due diligence period, well, no, I shouldn't say after their due diligence period, only during their due diligence period, they decide that they don't want to move forward. They don't have to forfeit their earnest money. They can pay the termination fee. So maybe their earnest money is $5,000 and their termination fee is $1,000. During the due diligence period, they back out. They only have to pay the $1,000. They don't have to pay the full five. Now, after the due diligence period, at that point, they decide to back out. Now they're on the hook for the $5,000 earnest money. And that's this is an important thing. A lot of sellers, with it being a seller's market, they want to see that termination fee in there. If you're buying a property with a due diligence period, they want to see that you have a little bit of skin in the game. And maybe you can get by with a $250 or a $500 due diligence. Um, but you need to be confident that you want that property when you put it under contract if you're going to include a termination fee because you're going to end up paying something if you back out. It's either going to be the termination fee or it's going to be your earnest money. Almost certainly. Now, if one of your contingencies that you have um, doesn't work out, like I said, if you have an appraisal contingency and you get a low appraisal, you might be able to back out without surrendering one of those one of those things. But that is highly unusual. Highly unusual because most properties that have this, this due diligence checked off, um, they are not getting an appraisal done. They're not going through all of that. They're purchasing a property oftentimes with cash, um, oftentimes without a whole lot of other contingencies. And all of that work needs to be done during the due diligence period to determine if you're going to move forward or not. That is generally speaking. Due diligence uh, way of going about this is really simple because there's just one date and the buyer just determines during that time period whether they want to move forward or not. If they don't, there might be a little bit of a renegotiation to try to to try to bring both parties back together. And then if not, the contract just falls through and the termination fee uh, is paid if there is one. And if there isn't one, then nothing gets paid by the, from the buyer to the seller. So it's really simple uh, in that regard. But again, it's used very sparingly in this seller's market, really only in, in niche cases because it gives so much power to the buyer and sellers know that they don't have to give that much power to the buyer. So what is normally used, okay? The as is part of this is used a very small percentage of the time, like probably 1% or less. Due diligence, I would say, is probably used maybe 10, 15% of the time. The vast majority of the time, that real estate contracts in this area are being written, they are being written with the repair procedure. And the repair procedure is 
incredibly more complicated than the other things. And so that's why we have to have this podcast. And this is a conversation that unfortunately I have to have with pretty much all of my buyer clients, all of my seller clients, because it's so unique and it's such an unusual way of doing things. And it they attempted to clean this up in the simplified contract that my office produced. But unfortunately, there are firms that feel threatened by that. And so here we are. We're stuck most of the time with the repair procedure. Here's how the repair procedure works. Here's the big picture. You have to have your inspections done during the inspection period that that you put in the contract. And after those inspections are done, then you must make a list of repairs to the seller. The seller is only obligated to make certain repairs. They are not obligated to to make any and all repairs that you want. They are not obligated to renegotiate the contract. They're not obligated uh, for anything except for a very narrow uh, amount of repairs that the contract boilerplate language itself specifies. So the seller then either agrees or disagrees to these repairs. If they agree to the repairs that they have to do based on the contract language, then the buyer has to move forward. Or, or the buyer can, can terminate the contract and forfeit their earnest money and possibly be litigated. That's the, that's the other option, not a good option. Um, if the seller does not agree to do the repairs that are necessary, then the buyer has to make a decision. Does the buyer attempt to uh, to get out of the contract? At that point, they should be able to get their earnest money back. Um, again, it can it can become a big dispute, and this is a bad time for there to be a, a big dispute because the you know the courts uh, are backed up because of COVID, from my understanding, and uh, it, it's 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 difficult. Usually, the buyer ends up winning those earnest money disputes in the end, at least that's that's what I've heard more often than not, um, is that, you know, even if the seller gets the earnest money, the seller kind of gets the short end of the stick that they, you know, while that dispute is still happening, they can't really market the house uh, as available. So um, it, it becomes a very, it puts the seller in a uh, in a bit of a difficult spot in that regard when the seller doesn't agree to to some of these repairs um, or the buyer thinks that some of these repairs are necessary to be done, then there can be some negotiating that happens. But in the best case scenario, everyone agrees on the repairs that are to be done and then the seller does those repairs and then the buyer has to check them and then everyone agrees, we are good to go and then they go to closing. Now again, this is not factoring in other contingencies. Remember, there are going to be tons of other contingencies in a contract, and uh, appraisal contingencies, financing contingencies, CL100 contingencies, which again, that's checking for wood-destroying organisms. That is actually separate from the repair procedure. That's its own contingency because we have such an issue with mold and termites and whatnot down here. Um, so there are all these other things that could come into play as well that could cause a buyer to, to um, be able to back out. But specifically with regard to the repair procedure, it is very limiting in what the seller has to do. Here is what 
the actual form, what Form 310 says. It says that the seller has to agree to fix these systems to make these systems operable. Heating systems, air conditioning systems, electrical systems, plumbing systems, water supply systems, and water waste systems. Those have to be operable. Now, someone that I heard with the South Carolina Realtor Association, who is kind of like the contract, you know, one of the contract uh, language specialists over there, said that even if, let's say for instance, that the AC is cooling the property, but not cooling it to the extent that you would expect it to, technically the seller can make the argument that it is still an operative condition. It's cooling. It might not be cooling the way it's supposed, you know, it might not be extremely efficient. It might not be cooling the house as quickly or as well as you would like it to, but that's operative. Now, if it's not cooling, that's inoperative. That needs to be fixed. Um, so that is something to keep in mind. This, again, it is very vague, and it gives a lot of, it, it concedes a lot to the seller. The, the whole problem here is that the due diligence option concedes so much to the buyer, and then the as-is and the repair procedure options concede a whole lot uh, to, uh, to the seller. And, and really puts the seller in, in the driver's seat in a lot of things. And so there's not a whole lot here that this form specifies. Now, there are a few other things beyond those major systems that the seller is obligated to do. One is to make the roof free of leaks. Now, that doesn't mean replace the roof. If there's a leak, the seller might just throw some mastic or some caulk on the roof and, and say, okay, now it's free of leaks. Um, that is a, a possibility. I've seen that happen. Um, to in address environmental concerns. Now, what are those? Um, this is really broad, and I wish that this were more specific, but basically um, the two examples that were given for environmental concerns by uh, the South Carolina Realtor Association that, that I heard recently was mold and radon. We need to talk about radon in more detail at some point. Uh, but we have a ma we have a major radon problem in South Carolina. Thankfully, it's easy it's easily mitigated. Um, but uh, radon is a very dangerous gas that you never see, and it's naturally occurring in the ground, um, and that's an environmental concern um, that sellers have to address. But it doesn't give a whole lot of specifics on how they address it, um, or or what environmental concerns there might be. Um, and then the final thing it says is to make the improvements structurally sound. And I cannot stand that language. It, it's so confusing. But think about it this way. If there is a structural issue with the house, the seller has to make it sound. And it, need, it needs to be structurally sound. So an example, um, you've got a rafter in the roof that is broken. That is something that needs to be made structurally sound. You've got a foundation issue, piers that are crumbling and the foundation is starting to fall apart. That is a structural issue that needs to be fixed. The seller is obligated to fix those things. Now you have, you, you go in there and, you know, I, I have a, some clients that are under contract for a house and some of the doors 
wouldn't close properly. This is a new construction house. Some of the doors won't close properly. Does that fit in any of those nine buckets that we discussed? AC systems, electrical systems, plumbing systems, water supply, water waste, roof leaks, environmental concerns, and structural soundness. No, that is not uh, an item in any of those categories. Those doors do not need to be closed. They do not need to be able to, to close correctly. Let me say it that way. Unless they can be connected in some way to one of those other issues. Here's one that a lot of people don't think about. What if the oven doesn't work? What if the range doesn't work? What if the refrigerator doesn't work? This doesn't address appliances. Um, so that's a major problem. I always uh, write in to offers that, that I'm, uh, I write on behalf of my buyer clients that the appliances need to be in operative condition because that's a major oversight. People expect their appliances to work when they walk into a house. Um, now, there are some things that you might think would be included as part of this that are not. Um, and, and thankfully, one of the improvements of this contract over the old one is that it clarifies some of these things. So here are some things that are not seller paid repairs. Now, again, I should say a buyer can request for these things to be done, but the seller can simply say no. And then uh, you know, it, it becomes a, a game of chicken and mouse, whether the buyer wants to move forward or whether the buyer, uh, did I just say chicken and mouse? Cat and mouse, where, the, where we're trying to figure out whether the buyer wants to move forward, um, wants to, to risk uh, forfeiting their earnest money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if, you know, if we got into a situation where a buyer really thinks this needs to be repaired and the seller declines to do it and the contract clearly is on the side of the seller. But here are the items the contract specifically says are not seller paid repairs. Home maintenance, flooring, fogged windows, grandfathered code issues, landscaping, preventative maintenance, cosmetic changes, home improvement, and energy efficiency. So, you know, an example might be something like this. Uh, let's say that there's moisture in the crawl space. The uh, inspector recommends a French drain installed around the house. Well, um, that might be the best way to avoid moisture going into the crawl space, but that would be a preventative maintenance category. Uh, you could you could say a few different things. That could be a home improvement. That could be a preventative maintenance. Um, there there are a few things that uh, a few buckets that that could could fall under that are not included. And on that basis, if the seller can find another way of getting moisture out of the crawl space without doing one of those things, then that's that's the seller's prerogative. And, and the seller can say that they have adequately addressed the contract language on that basis. Um, let's say that you have uh, outlets that are not grounded. This is a very common one. You get into these older homes we have around here. The outlets aren't grounded. You have, you know, uh, an inspector comes in and he flags none of these outlets are grounded. Um, that is not a seller paid repair. That's a grandfathered code issue. Outlets were not required to be grounded 50 years ago or something like that, probably 50 years ago. Um, they were not required to be grounded way back then. It's not necessary. Insulation is a common one too. You know, you might 
you got an old house, the insulation up in the attic might be completely inadequate. It doesn't matter. That's a grandfathered code issue. That's not a repair. And so these are things, there's a lot of confusion, okay, over what someone can ask a seller to do and, and what, they, uh, what the seller is not obligated to do on, on behalf of the buyer. Wood rot is, is probably the most controversial of all these things. Is wood rot a structural issue or not? Well, guess what? Some of this could depend on what the inspector says. The way the inspector words something in their inspection report could, at the end of the day, make all the difference in the world in terms of whether someone, whether a seller is obligated to fix a wood rot issue, because it all comes down to whether it's structural or not, right? That's the only category that that could fit in. Um, and so if, if an inspector says that it's a structural issue, a court would probably rule on the side of the inspector in that case. Um, but generally speaking, wood rot would be considered more or less a cosmetic issue. And it specifically says cosmetic changes are not one of the seller uh, paid repaired items in here that, that a seller is obligated to do. Um so it, this, what's really unfortunate about about this, what I what I hate about this is that it oftentimes requires a whole new round of negotiating, and it's negotiating right now in this market. It's it's pretty exhausting, uh, particularly for the buyer, and then you get to this stage. You do all your inspections, and there are some things that aren't working very well. You know, you've got a faucet that is leaking a little bit. You know, technically, you could make an argument that a leaking faucet, that's not an inoperative plumbing issue. The faucet works. It's just leaking. You could make that argument. And the South Carolina Association of Realtors would most likely side in that instance with the seller that the seller doesn't need to make that repair. Now, I think that's silly. I think a seller should make that repair. And I'm going to encourage all of my seller clients they have a leaking faucet that's flagged on the inspection report. Fix the faucet. If the toilet, if if there's something wrong with the toilet, fix the toilet. Like you don't want to to alienate the buyer and and be petty with the buyer at the end of the day. That doesn't make for a good transaction. Um, but a lot of sellers and a lot of buyers right now are petty, and it creates this exhausting transaction where every single part. Uh, along the way is a negotiation, and nobody enjoys that. Nobody, nobody likes that. Nobody uh, benefits from that. Oftentimes, doing these repairs just costs, you know, maybe a few hundred bucks for everything, but it makes the buyer feel so much better at the end of the day that they don't have to immediately come in and do all of these things. And so, I encourage my sellers, if they're not major, major items, just knock them out, get them done. Get let the buyer, um, you know, be content. Now, if the buyer's asking for some ridiculous things, if they have, you know, seven pages of, of repairs and the vast majority of them are are not qualifying as seller paid repairs, then yeah, that's a different story. But if they ask for like, you know, eight things to be repaired, and three of them technically are not uh, seller paid repairs, but they're also not that big of a deal. 
I encourage my sellers, most of the time, you should just go ahead and, and do that to keep the transaction humming, to keep everyone happy. Once you alienate one of the parties and once you make them feel like you're being petty, they color everything through that lens. And it makes the transaction go sideways. I've seen this happen so many times. People start reading into each other's motives and they start reading into all kinds of different things happening. It's not worth it. Um, it's, it's better if everyone just tries to work together to a reasonable, uh, a reasonable agreement. Now, real quick to wrap this up, that the repair procedure, so there's a deadline by which the, uh, the repair procedure inspections and requests have to be delivered to the seller. And, uh, you know, I always ask for the actual uh, inspection report, you know, if I'm, if I'm representing the, uh, the seller, at least to have the relevant pages of the inspection report that apply to the requests that are made. Now, there's a date that we have to write in there that by this date, we, the buyer has to deliver those requests. And then there's a second field with a second date that says no later than 6 p.m. on this date, which we also fill in, then the seller shall deliver notice agreeing or not agreeing to make the repairs in the buyer's repair requests. Um, so that's that's an important date. You know, usually the seller has, you know, three, four, five days in order to agree or to not agree to, and it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. You could agree to five out of the eight, um, but they have to agree or not agree to some of these repairs. Now, this is a really important part of the language that a lot of people don't even know is in here because it's so wordy, but it says, if the seller does not timely respond per above, in other words, if the seller doesn't respond by the above date um, or does not agree to make all the seller paid repairs, again, these are the repairs outlined in the contract, then the buyer has two calendar days to choose one of the following. One, accept the property in its present condition. Two, negotiate a new amended contract with the seller for the payment of those repairs slash price. Or three, terminate this contract by delivered notice. And then it says this in all bold and caps, if the buyer fails to accept, renegotiate a new amended contract with the seller, terminate contract by delivered notice within two calendar days, then the buyer agrees and the seller agrees to sell the property as is. So, wow. So this is really important, okay? So the buyer has a deadline to uh, to make their inspections done and to submit their repair requests to the seller. Then the seller has a deadline to respond, agreeing or not agreeing to the requests. If the seller doesn't respond on time or if the seller... Uh, doesn't agree to do repairs that the seller is obligated to repair. For instance, to fix a roof leak or um, if an outlet is not working, to fix the outlet because that's an, an electrical systems issue. Um, if the seller doesn't respond on time or doesn't agree to those types of repairs within two calendar days, then the buyer has the option, has those three options either to renegotiate or to terminate, or to just move forward. But then if the buyer within two calendar days doesn't uh, inform the seller of what he or she intends to do, then the buyer is agreeing to move forward as is. So um, it, these deadlines for the repair procedure, again, the due diligence period has one deadline and it makes it very simple. The, uh, the repair procedure 
has all these deadlines. And of course, as a realtor, I keep track of all of that and make sure that everyone is, is following things the way they're supposed to. But these deadlines can become very confusing very quickly. And uh, they're ex extremely important to adhere to. Unfortunately, again, as I've said, 80 to 90% of our contracts here in the upstate, it's assumed that they are going to have that repair procedure and just need to understand it's a messy procedure that involves negotiation and a lot of gray area. Uh, me as a realtor, I try to work with other realtors to uh, for everyone to be on the same page. This is where this is where a lot of for sale by owner transactions really hit a major wall or these transactions where there's a what we call a fee for service agent, an agent that just posts um, uh, post the listing on the MLS, but then directs all communication directly to the seller. Oftentimes, there are major breakdowns at this part in the process. I would say about 90% at least of the time with a for sale by owner or you know one of these agents that passes off communication to the seller, there are issues when we're dealing with the repair procedure because the seller doesn't fully understand their obligations, they don't understand uh, some of the colloquialisms, they don't understand the way things just kind of normally happen in, th in this market, and uh, it ends up kind of becoming a mess, and it ends up becoming uh, a headache for a lot of people. And so that's something uh, to keep in mind as well. Hopefully, if you're in a transaction, there are two good realtors involved, that know how to work with each other, that know how to get things done, that know how to set expectations for both parties to help them to compromise and to come to an agreement so there's not constant renegotiation, uh, renegotiating happening. That's the best case scenario. And then everything can go smoothly, and then there aren't a bunch of, of big, big headaches that everyone has to deal with um, you know, as they go through the transaction. Those are the categories, repair procedure, due diligence, as is. Most people are not going to ever do an as-is transaction. If you're an investor, you might do a few due diligence ones. Uh, the vast majority of you guys are going to be doing uh, uh, deals with the repair procedure. I'll mention one other thing, okay, as, as part of this, just as a last-second tack-on, and, and I'll let you guys go. One of the challenges with this is that properties that need to be looked at, um, but let's say that, that you're trying to make your offer attractive to the seller, but and it's an investment property, but you know the seller is not going to do any repairs, you can't do the repair procedure because the seller is not going to do any repairs. So you're limited now to a due diligence or an as-is period. Well, the due diligence isn't a good option because that gives you too much power as the buyer and the seller is going to be frustrated with that probably or, or alarmed by that. And the as-is period gives too much power to the seller. Now you can't back out without forfeiting your earnest money. And, and of, of course, we've discussed a little bit of how you can alleviate some of the, cons, uh, some of the concerns with the due diligence period, with the termination fee. Um, but at the end of the day, these are imperfect solutions. 
there are some uh, some things that can be done. Uh, I didn't even discuss all of the all of the different things that can be done to try to to improve your offer and for all the parties to uh, to be happy with how it's structured. But we have some limitations with Form 310 here in South Carolina. By the way, I should mention I'm recording this on August 18th, 2020. I'm sure this this document will be updated in the future, and I'm sure this language will be updated in the future. So make sure that you double check it with your realtor, or, or if I'm your realtor, double check it with me that it hasn't changed since I, I recorded this. Um, but um, those are the considerations. It's a lot to consider. It's a lot of, of different moving pieces. This is my job. This is why, uh, even in the age of Zillow, there are still realtors. We still have to act as that middleman, the, the person that's on your side, that's, that's not paying you, you know, $200 an hour as an attorney, uh, but is also able to be on your side to help you to understand how to work and navigate through a transaction. If you have any questions, let me know. My contact information is in there in the show notes. And until next time, don't go too crazy on the repair procedure. Don't be too petty if you're a buyer or a seller. Stay safe. Let's do some more deals here in 2020.